Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds. I'm Mark Kramer, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm a serial and entrepreneur. I do consulting work with entrepreneurs and family businesses. And I'm very excited today to welcome Dr. Barbara Kahn, marketing professor at the Wharton School of Business and author of The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers in an Era of Endless Disruption. Barbara. We're thrilled to have you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. And Barbara, please give us a little bit about your background, what you teach at Wharton, and maybe some of the consulting work you're doing. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm a professor of marketing at the Wharton School. I've been there for quite a number of years. Um, and more pertinent to the topic today, um, from, let's see, two. 2011 to 2017, I ran the J.H. Baker Retailing Center at the Wharton School. And during that time, the purpose of the Retailing Center was really to connect the industry with academics. And during that time, I spent a lot of time studying the retail industry. Um, and uh, I, we had a lot of people on our that were part of the center from legacy retailers everywhere from all the big department stores all the big brands all the big luxury brands to the startups like warby parker and bonobos and those kinds of things so we really interface with a lot of the industry and at the same time i i am an academic so i was studying all the research that was being done and looking at the different frameworks for retail and things like that and during 2011 to 2017 there was radical change in the retailing world as many of you know and that when I stepped down in 2017, I wrote a book, which marked as reference called The Shopping Revolution, which um, really chronicled all the things that changed during that period and caused 2017 at the time to be called the retail apocalypse, the year of the retail apocalypse, when so many physical stores were closing that people were thinking maybe retail was dead. And of course, any of us in the retail business or any of us studying that business, we don't think retailing is dead, it's just changing. And so the purpose of the book was really to say, what are the winning strategies? How do you continue to compete in retail? Now, where we are today, 2020, of course, COVID has changed retailing yet again. And I'm modifying my book. I actually just handed in my first draft of the revision of the book yesterday um, to talk about how COVID has affected retailing. And just to cut to the chase on that, my bottom line on it is everything that I said in my original book, still true, it's just accelerated. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited to ask you these questions. And my mom worked 40 years at Strawbridge and Macy's. So I got to hear on a daily basis about how the retail world was working. And my aunt worked at Lord & Taylor until a couple until months. Recently, yeah. Yeah. Until recently, uh, Until it all ended for Lord Lord & Taylor as well. Did you ever, in your when you were younger, work in retail yourself? Um, did I ever work in retail? No, I guess not. I've been most of, I did, I was in advertising actually before I went into academia, but most of my professional life has been in academia. But my research area is to study consumer behavior and how people, how consumers make decisions. And so I've always looked at it from the point of view of the customer in retail environments. So I've been studying, I was very actively studying the industry interface for the last, you know, 10 years or so when I was directing that center. But previous to that, my whole research area had been about how do consumers make decisions in retail. In the middle of the 90s, I wrote a book called The Grocery Revolution, which was really about the transformation that was happening in grocery when Walmart entered. Um, so I've been studying retailing for a really long time, but I haven't, I never, I've never worked in retail per se, but that's because I've been in academic the whole time. And your daughter's in retail. Uh, my son is in retail. My son is a planner. Yeah, he's a planner for retail, right? He works for this company called Delta Galil, which uh, licenses a lot of big brands like Calvin and Seven for All Mankind and things like that. He well, hopefully they're reading your book. Oh, definitely, yeah. So let's start. What are the seven forces transforming retail? You talk about that in your book. Yeah, so this is what I started to say. In, in the original book, I talked about these the seven forces. And in the revision that I handed in yesterday, it's the same seven forces, but COVID has made a difference. I mean, anybody who's sitting here on this Zoom meeting knows that COVID's changed our lives radically. And obviously, it has changed 
um, it has changed these seven forces too. So let me go over the seven forces and we can dialogue about them. Um, and also talk about what I talked about originally and how I think COVID's changed it. So the first force that I think radically changed um, retailing, and I can't imagine most people would disagree with me, is Amazon. And so Amazon, you know, if it's the gorilla in the room, Amazon has really, really changed the way people think of retailing. Um, it, it introduced the idea of e-commerce, made e-commerce a viable source. And when you look at what happens in COVID and the effect of uh, Amazon and COVID, you know, if, if you're one of the few retailers that's allowed to be open during the few months of COVID, you can imagine that whatever power Amazon had going into COVID was only strengthened. Um, and for sure, the latest numbers for Amazon showed, despite some hiccups in the beginning when they had some supply chain channels, um, Amazon's going to come out of COVID stronger than ever. Um, and so what Amazon did, if you think about how did it radically change retail, it's not only that it made the idea of shopping online a realistic alternative to physical stores, but it also introduced what Jeff Bezos talks constantly about is the customer focus. Like what he would talk about, there's a lot of anecdotes about Bezos, but one of the ones that I really like is that supposedly whenever there's meetings at Amazon, there's always an empty chair in the conference room and that empty chair is for the customer. And so they're always talking about customer focused marketing and thinking about retail from the customer point of view. And frankly, um, retailing has in the past suffered, and I'll talk about this again in another four, another one of the forces that I talk about, from being very product focused. And Bezos really introduced this idea of customer centricity um, and that model. And one of the things that I think is a really good metaphor for what Bezos introduces as a philosophy is the idea of one-click shopping. Now, everybody knows what one-click shopping is, right? It's one click, and then from there on in, you can make the purchase. Makes shopping super easy. What I thought was super interesting about this is in 1997, Amazon invented this idea called one-click shopping, and they patented it. And the patent did not run out till 2017. That meant for 20 years, Anytime you purchase anything online with one click shopping, you were purchasing from Amazon. And if somebody else copied, like Barnes and Noble did copy, they figured out how to do it, the technology's not that hard, Amazon sued them. And, and Barnes and Noble had to add more clicks. Now, the reason I think this is a really interesting metaphor for the whole philosophy of what Amazon, so you know what Amazon is, I don't have to tell you about Amazon, but this idea of customer centricity, I think is really important. And why could they patent one-click shopping? And if you go back 20 years ago, now 23 years ago, to 1997 when they patented it, and you were developing a website or you were in retail then, the philosophy of the websites in the retail was not to get you in and out of the store fast. It was actually to keep you in the store or keep you in the on the website. What you tried to do back then was maximize what was called dwell time. And the longer you stayed on the web page, the more likely you were to make a purchase. Similarly, if you think about physical retail at grocery, I wrote about this in my grocery book, they used to put the milk in the back of the store. Why? So that you would walk through the store to buy this necessary purchase and be more likely to make another purchase on the way of, to picking up milk. From a retailing point of view, that's kind of smart, right? You're getting more impulse purchases and more purchases. But if you're maximizing customer centricity, it's not from the customer point of view. If I just wanted to run in and out of a store and buy milk, I didn't appreciate it that it was all the way in the back of the store. And that insight, that kernel of insight, I think is at the heart of Amazon. And it's why, like I give a lot of talks on retail and I talk a lot about Amazon. And if you go to a room on Amazon, you know, a room of people interested in retailing and you say, are Amazon, is Amazon a good guy or a bad guy? You're going to find it as 50-50%. If you're a customer of Amazon, you're going to say, Amazon's the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. I love Amazon. If you compete against Amazon, you're going to say Amazon is evil. They're, you know, let's look at the antitrust suits, like look, all this other stuff. So Amazon, for all its complexity, all of its really fundamentally changed um, 
change retail. So I would say that's the first force that's really changing retail. And I'll, I'll pause before I go into other marks to see if you have comments on that. No, 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 I, I just keep going. Oh, keep going? Okay. So I would say that's the number one focus. This, I mean, number one, obviously change. And I don't have to tell anybody, you know, you're living the world of Amazon. You know how Amazon's transformed. But I just, this idea of the way they did and some of the, if you think through their strategy, it's really brilliant. Bezos was really brilliant in the way he transformed retail. So a second trend is this notion I alluded to in thinking about um, uh, Amazon. And it's this move from product focus to customer focus. And it's also thinking about retail as a customer-centric omni-channel world. Now that's a whole lot of buzzwords, so let's like uncouple some of that. The first idea is this notion that I mentioned of product focus versus customer focus. I think one of the things that'll give you good insight into what I'm talking about here, just to give examples, is I think sometimes examples like make the ideas clearer. So one of the things when I was talking about retail, who are the winners and who are the losers? During 2017, 2018, 2019, even before COVID, we were seeing the closing of a lot of Macy's. A lot of department stores were closing. Um, and people now, even with COVID, are saying, is this the time of the death of the department store? And um, the closing of the department stores was a very important thing because they anchored malls. And when the anchor closed, it affected a lot of the internal retailers as well, because that typically the anchor is the reason you go to a mall. If department stores close, it affects the other people in the mall. So it was a very big deal when Macy's was closing stores. Now, Macy's was typically closing their stores in B and C malls, not their A malls. But when I was looking at this, and I, I told you I started writing this book in 2017, what I was asking myself was, okay, Macy's are closing. Is that because people aren't shopping anymore or are they not shopping in Macy's? And if they're not shopping in Macy's, where are they shopping and why? Now, one of the things we already talked about, some people moved online. So the e-commerce threat was one of the reasons. People stopped going to physical stores. They started buying online. That was one thing. Other thing that was threatening Macy's at the time was uh, the low price retailers. TJ Maxx was doing really well, Walmart, Target, all of those were doing really well. And they were coming at the department stores on a price proposition. That's not that interesting. We've known price has been a competitive strategy for a long time. What I think is super interesting is what happened to health and beauty and cosmetic business. And to me, this is gonna illustrate what I'm talking about. Remember where I'm going with this, from customer focus to product focus. So, Cosmetics beauty, very important part of department stores, right? And you know it is because it's the, um, so much real estate, valuable real estate in a department store is, is dedicated to cosmetics. But what was happening is a lot of people that used to buy cosmetics at Macy's were starting to buy it at Sephora. Now, why, why? If you look at Sephora and compare it to Macy's, what you'll see is at the time, the Sephora's Post-COVID, it's a different issue, but this is pre-COVID. Sephora sold the same products, they had the same brands, and they sold it at the same price. So it wasn't about product and price. What was it about? It was the idea that the customer experience around the sale of the cosmetic was different in Macy's than in Sephora. And whoops, sorry about that. What was the difference? What was the difference? It's what I'm gonna call difference between product-focused selling, pushing the product out, and customer focus, which is taking the point of view of the customer and wrapping the whole experience around it. Remember, the product and the price are exactly the same. At Macy's, all the salespeople are on commission. And if you want to buy cosmetics, you need to go through the salesperson. Even a 16-year-old high school person knew that if you sat down at a cosmetic counter at Macy's and had them put the makeup on your face, you'd be expected to buy a product. You would know that they'd be cross-selling you and upselling you. You did not control the product yourself. You went through the salesperson who got it from behind the counter for you. The, the metaphor that I would say in, in this whole model of, of selling cosmetics that way was the perfume lady. She literally pushed the product out on you, spraying you with the product when you walked into the store. 
That is the idea of the hard cell, literally a very hard cell of cosmetics at Macy's. Now, contrast that to what goes on in Sephora. Sephora, pre-COVID, all the product is out all over the store. You can try anything you want on without going through a salesperson. Furthermore, the salespeople are not on commission. They are not there to upsell you and cross-sell you. They are there to help you. So the customer experience that was wrapped around the product was very, very different in Macy's versus Sephora. And what happened was Sephora attracted all these people to come into their store and play with cosmetics. Beauty, cosmetics, that's a playground. That is a fun environment. That's what people wanted to do. They wanted to experiment. They wanted to play. And when that happened, all these people came to support. They were very crowded stores, and that's where they started buying. So that model is this notion of product focus versus customer focus. That's the first thing. The other thing about Sephora that's very sophisticated is they have a very sophisticated online presence as well. So they're very sophisticated in YouTube, in videos. They have a very strong loyalty program. And they're what we call omni-channel, which means the online, offline behavior is completely integrated. From a customer point of view, a, a, a Sephora a customer might go online, play around with all sorts of cosmetics things online, then go into the store to try certain things on that they saw online. Sephora is aware of all of that behavior and integrates all that behavior. So they can send you messages or programs you or emails that are going to map onto your behavior between online and offline. And that's what I call omnichannel. Now what's happened during COVID, as you can imagine, when physical stores are closed, if you had an omnichannel presence, and you knew what people were doing online, even when your physical store is closed, you're in a much better situation than if your systems were completely separate and you didn't know. So all of the very sophisticated retailers that had omni-channel together, like Walmart, like Target, like Amazon, like Sephora, they're in a much stronger position than people that did not have completely omni-channel experiences. The new word that we're talking about now is customer-centric omni-channel. So that marries both of these ideas. The first idea is omni-channel, which is a seamless integration of your online and offline behavior. All that data is merged. And with the use of the phone, there's three channels really, the phone, online, and offline. And all of that data is seamlessly integrated. That's what's meant by omni-channel. And customer-focused or customer-centric omnichannel says, look at that entire integrated world from the point of view of the customer and recognize the customer doesn't distinguish between whether she's buying online or offline or on the phone. It's all at Sephora. It's one big experience. Mark referenced my daughter. I talk to my daughter on the phone. I talk to her on text. I talk to her in person. You know what? I don't remember the channel that I used when I communicated with my daughter. I don't remember if a conversation that we had was online, was by text, was in person, was on the phone. I just know my comprehensive relationship with my daughter. And that's what customer-centric omni-channel retailing is. And the very, very sophisticated retailers are all there. That's a huge different way of thinking about retailing. So that's what I would say is the second check. The second force, Amazon and everything Amazon needs. The second one is customer-centric omni-channel retail. I'll pause again, Mark, in case you want to say. Well, you know, I wanted to know is, do, do you think any of the online retailers are going to survive here or will they all be wiped out? Well, you know, what I'm describing is very sophisticated retailing. Um, and, you know, I'll get to the third trend in a second, which is massive data collection and the use of algorithms and artificial intelligence and machine learning to use that data in a very sophisticated way. If you're starting to compete against this kind of sophisticated retailer and you're not at that level, 
you're going to be in trouble. Does that mean only the big players are going to win and that it's the death of department stores? No, because there are other things that people care about. Like I'm sure some of you, you know, you want to buy on, on Amazon, you want to buy at Walmart, but you also want to go to your local restaurant and have a personalized experience in your local restaurant or your local retail. So there's other things that people care about. Or maybe you have a favorite brand that Amazon doesn't sell and you'll go direct to that brand. So there are other types of behaviors that consumers will appreciate, not just the sophisticated retail world. But if you don't give me a reason to buy from you, then yes, they will go under. And so to the department stores, part of the problem with some of the department stores that are struggling, like say JCPenney's or Sears, maybe Macy's, is that they're what I would call stuck in the middle. They're not giving me a compelling reason to go to them. If you compelling reason, yes, then I will go. And there are plenty of compelling reasons. It could be personalized experience. It could be local. It could be location. Everybody knows from retail, the old world was location, location, location. Maybe you want to go to the store that's just down the street. There are reasons. You may go to other retailers, but give me a reason to buy. So when did J.C. Penney and Lord and & Taylor stop being cool? Because it seems like they've stopped being cool for quite some time. J.C. Penney has a long tortured history, right? I mean, so J.C. Penney was losing um, traffic. Traffic was weighed down in J.C. Penney, and I'm going to argue because it was stuck in the middle. Like, why would you go to J.C. Penney's? Maybe you went there when underwear was on sale or something. It just wasn't the kind of store that you went to, went out of your way to go to. So traffic was weighed down. And then they hired the famous part of J.C. Penney. Those of you who are in retail know they hired Von Johnson to be the savior of J.C. Penney. I think this is just when I started at Baker. He's the one from Apple. Yeah, it must have been about 2011 when they hired. So Ron Johnson was head of Apple retail. Everybody thought he was the second coming. He was the guru. Because if you think about retailing that amazing, fantastic, you know, one of the things that comes into your mind is Apple, what a fantastic store, you know? And Ron Johnson was the one who was in charge of Apple retail. So he went as like the Messiah. He went in to save JCPenney. I think it was 2011, 2012, somewhere around then. But unfortunately, he didn't realize that the customers who were like shopping at Apple were not the same customers that were shopping at JCPenney, nor were the employees who worked at JCPenney the same type of people who were working at Apple. So what worked at Apple didn't necessarily work very well at JCPenney. And you can think of a hundred different reasons why Apple retailing is not the same as JCPenney. He came with very sophisticated ideas. He made a really big splash. If you were following retail at the time, everybody was covering like, what's Ron Johnson gonna do for JCPenney? He had very actually cool, innovative ideas, but he didn't implement them very well for the world he was working in. And what happened is JCPenney was weak before Ron Johnson came there, and it got way weaker after. Like everything he did actually backfired really badly against JCPenney, and traffic went way down. He did one of the things I'll give you an example of. He tried to simplify the pricing, and he had what it was called red, white, and blue pricing, which actually was not simple. It was like I'm a retail expert, I couldn't understand. I had to read it really carefully what red, white, and blue meant. It was like at a certain time of the year, there would be a red price, and then there was a white price. And there was, I mean, it actually wasn't as simple as he said. But what it was was everyday low pricing, it wasn't sales. So he got rid of the sales. Now, ironically, that was a terrible mistake for JCPenney. Because as I mentioned, why were people going to JCPenney in the first place? They were going because underwear was on sale. So they were going for the sale. Maybe when they were there, they would buy other stuff. He took away the sales. So there was no real reason to go to JCPenney. To not understand that basic phenomena about how people shop was so well, fundamentally misguided. I, I think his thinking was maybe that it would be like Apple products where Apple could charge three, four times what the comparisons are charging because the products are so well made and so cool and JCPenney JC didn't have it. I have a question here. Um, how can small local retailers compete against somebody like Amazon? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we're talking about a very sophisticated world, you know, with this 
customer-centric omni-channel with the data that's collected, that's artificial. But still, there are reasons why people don't want to buy everything at Walmart or Target. They want to go into what you're talking about, these local stores. I mean, I live in Philadelphia, and we, we were the restaurant capital of the world. We didn't have a lot of chains. We had all this local retail, and that's what I loved about the city. You know, and I would walk around, and that's what gave our city character. And I'm not unique in that. Like a lot of people like their local retailers and things like that. How, and so I absolutely think if you think about customer experience, remember the Sephora versus Macy's idea, it's about building something around the product. It's not necessarily about the product. It can be. Another strategy is to have unique product they can't buy anywhere else or unique brands. That would be one way. But another way is to also wrap some kind of experience around the shopping product that people really want. And obviously you can imagine touching and feeling that the store is down the street, that the salesperson knows me, that there's something really special about it. That's going to make a difference. And I'm going to go to those local retailers and people will see a value there. However, you've got to create that value. So one of the things that I have in my book is this thing that it's a matrix. And I talk about yeah, matrix. Yeah. I talk about two different ways. I mean, the matrix is built on two principles, which are really fundamental principles of marketing. I've been teaching marketing for a really long time. This has never changed. There's two principles, the principle of customer value and the principle of differential advantage. So what that means is give the customer something of value. And if it's a very competitive market, do it better than the competition. Simple. So if you're a local retailer, give me something of value I can't get anywhere else. Now, what's the way to do it? So I have a matrix that's built on those two principles. And I have four different strategies that you can win on. And so the four strategies are one is branded product. Give me a product that's so compelling that I want it more than anything else. So who's winning in this COVID world? Who's doing pretty well? Lululemon's doing well, relatively. Nike's doing well, relatively. Now, part of it is it's athleisure. And when you're on Zoom meetings, everybody's wearing, you know, athletic clothing. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is people love Nike. They love Lulu. You know, they really want to buy that product. So that's one way, branded product. The other way is what I was talking about, a customer experience that's fun. Think about Sephora. Give me a reason to go into the store, make your store something that I want to go to, whether it's a social interaction, whether it's I get to try on the product, and I can tell you a lot of new ideas that are coming out of that, like what Nordstrom is doing with Nordstrom Local. That's all about a customer experience. So make it fun. That's my first row in my matrix. Either make me a branded product that I love or give me a customer experience that I can't get anywhere else. The second row in my matrix is take away the pain and two ways to take away the pain. Compete on price, you know, Walmart, Target, Costco, they're all winning on price, but it's not just price, but partly price. And what I would argue Amazon really did is take away the pain of shopping, make it easy. Some people just want to buy something really fast, get in and out of the store, make it as easy as possible. And nothing makes it easier than, Walmart, than Amazon with their one-click shopping and their data, which means what you see when you go into Amazon is only what you need to see. You find what you want, super easy, you buy it and you're out of there. That all of those are compelling reasons to buy. I forgot um, what your I, question I, was. I thought they were... <laughs> Yeah, and I think you did a good job of answering that. And I think the same thing, I, I could be walking to the car and I bought four things on Amazon. Like I knew my dog need these biscuits. I knew that I wanted to get this book and I knew I wanted to send this gift and I don't have to go anywhere. I can literally be walking to the car and or taking the dog out and getting this done. So one of the questions here is there's a company called Stitch Fix and of course you know them, but maybe some of the other people aren't familiar. They did 1.5 billion in revenue in 2019 after only being in business for four years. Basically, they send you five items in the mail based on your profile preferences of styles. They, out of that five items, you can choose one to two and all of them, they will bill you based on the items you keep. Seems like the future is getting everything to you quickly and with the option to return quickly. The same as Zappos, the shoe store. Do you see this as a continuing trend? Stitch fix 
is such a sophisticated, brilliant marketer. You can tell they're brilliant. So let's uncouple a lot of things that's going on in Stitch Fix that's so interesting. The first thing is, and you talked about, you know, this notion of the box or what they call the fixes and things like that. But there's a lot of different ideas there. First of all, there's it's a subscription at the time. Now I think they've moved away from that, but one of the things that you also saw changing in retail, a lot of the digitally native vertical brands like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club that really took a big bite out of Gillette's market share, they're all subscription models. Why are subscription models so brilliant? Well, first of all, you can kind of figure out intuitively why they are, but they are also of the idea of customer-centric marketing versus product-centric. If we go back to the idea of customer-centric marketing, what this idea is, is give a certain segment, a profitable segment of the market, exactly what they want. And you make your profitability over time. So the customer-centric marketing is about what's called customer lifetime value. You maximize the profitability of a segment of customers over time. Product-focused marketing focuses on make the sale, make the sale, make the sale. So sell to as many people as you possibly can and make the sale. That's product-focused profitability. It's, it's about market share. Customer-focused prof profitability is about lifetime value. So the first thing that Stitch Fix does is the subscription. It locks customers in, and then you're going to make money with that customer over time. Now, in order to do that, you've got to create real customer value to first attract them to you and to keep them loyal over time. So the other thing that Stitch Fix does is they're collecting data constantly. Um, and so everything you choose or don't choose, when you pick or you don't choose, that's giving them data points. And in fact, they do things, they, I forget what it's called, a style something or another, but they'll have their royal customers and they have millions of customers go through their entire inventory and essentially swipe left or swipe right. I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, that kind of thing which gives them more and more data about what customers like. So now they're used, they have incredible data collection because they're getting customers data over time and they're getting preferences by their choices and by soliciting their choices. They marry that, and this is what I love about Stitch Fix. They use their data, they use the algorithms, they use customer lifetime value, all these things that I'm talking about that's very sophisticated, they use all of that in their state of the art. But they also have experienced buyers. And so they don't just look at what the data says. They have a person with an eye, with a kind of experience in the business, also talk about what makes sense. So they're marrying like the old world of retail with the new world of retail. And it's putting those two things together that's really creating their success story. So if you just relied on old data and all these other things, you couldn't give somebody something new and exciting. But if you had a sophisticated retailer there or a buyer there who kind of knows, like, look, this is the new study. Isn't, if this is the new thing. Isn't this cute? I'm going to add something new to your mix because I think you're going to like it. You know, that notion, the data is not going to be able to tell you. But a person can tell you. So Stitch Fix takes all of those ideas together, subscription model, customer-focused retail, using sophisticated data, using the algorithms, and marrying that with the sophistication that comes from experience. Is this just the beginning of AI for us in the retail industry? Yeah. And where do you see it going? No, you're going to see this all over. I mean, like I, I got back, in, I went to China before COVID hit in November, but I'm really glad I went because China is way ahead of us in this idea of new retail and what they're doing. Um, and, and what are they doing? Tell us. Well, uh, it's, they're doing a lot. There's a couple of trends that I can talk about in China. First of all, I don't know if people know Alibaba. So Alibaba is very big retailer. Now Alibaba is, is similar to Amazon and different from Amazon. First of all, it, Amazon has two kinds of sellers. They're called first party sellers and third party sellers. The first party sellers are like what Amazon sells under their own brand names. And it's kind of like, they're like a Macy's online. They, they are the ones who are selling you the product, right? Third party sellers are ones where they're just a marketplace and people, they bring all these sellers in on the Amazon platform and, and Amazon take, just takes a percentage of their sales. 
um, and they don't control the inventory or control anything. It's a third-party merchant that's just selling on the Amazon platform, okay? So Amazon has first-party sellers and third-party sellers. Alibaba has only third-party sellers. Alibaba is just the marketplace. And so where Alibaba makes their money is they make their money on the fees. Every time you buy something on the, Amazon, on the Alibaba platform, you're going to pay Alibaba a certain percentage for being on their platform. But they also make their money on advertising. Um, and so what a Alibaba tries to do is create a branded experience and build the brands up because Alibaba is not competing with the people selling on their site. So Alibaba supports the merchants that sell on Alibaba. Amazon is in some antitrust issues to some degree because Amazon does compete with the merchants that are selling on their site. That makes it a very different situation, okay? So put Amazon away for a second. Alibaba, what they wanna do is they wanna create this very exciting online customer experience. So they, some of the things that's going on in, in China is um, really big play on what they call key opinion leaders, KOLs. So a lot of, you, we're starting to see a little bit of that here with a lot of customers who like lead customers or opinion leaders. The marketing is being done online through social media by these opinion leaders. The closest thing we might have to it here is like Kim Kardashian or something like that. That's a really different way of marketing. That's very common in China. The other thing that's very common is live streaming. So you're seeing a lot, it's called shoppertainment. So a lot of what's going on is all this fun and marketing, you know, and all this social media excitement. And a lot of the selling is being done through that, through that mechanism. TikTok, the Chinese version of TikTok, which is called, I think, Doyen in China. I might have the Chinese wrong, excuse me. But it is the Chinese version of TikTok is very, very big deal in China. So you do all the TikTok stuff, which is attracting all these young consumers to that social media world, but they sell product through that. Now, all of a sudden we recognize why Walmart is making a bid for TikTok, right? So Walmart is trying to figure out all of these. Now, who knows what will happen and how that play out with, you know, with Trump getting involved and what can and cannot be sold and whatever. But the re, so I'm not gonna go there. I don't know the politics of all of that, but I understand why Walmart's interested in TikTok. So you have to think about what does retailing mean? You know, if TikTok is an incredibly important source for, for retailing, if that's what retailing is going to mean, that's a very different way of thinking about retail. So that's one idea the, it, that comes from China, this idea of shopper team. Another thing that you see in China is what's called the super apps. So that's like Alipay or WeChat. Now, those are payment systems, but they're much bigger than any of the payment systems we have. So, so everything in China is through Alipay or, or WeChat, um, and they're independent, and they're two really big universes. If you go to China, you pretty much can't use a credit card or cash. You're going to have to pay for your product through one of these payment systems. But these payment systems are also your social media. They call the equivalent of whatever the Chinese version of Uber is. They, you can buy tickets. It's a super app. Everything that you do on your phone, you can pretty much do through WeChat or through Alipay. So now what you're doing is you're merging your retail world with everything else you do. Your payment system's there. You're in Uber, you're going somewhere. Maybe there's a retail opportunity for you while you're in a car. You see what starts to happen? If your whole world is within that super app, there are lots of different opportunities for shopping that didn't exist before. And if you recognize the world of big data and algorithms, and you see a very sophisticated algorithm that can put together all these data sources and come up with retail opportunities, that's a different way of thinking about retail. It's a different way of thinking about customer experience. So that's the, so the first thing is this shoppertainment the idea of live streaming, key opinion leaders, all of that. Second is these super apps. And the third thing is Amazon's doing it a little bit here, but it's much bigger in China, is this integrated omni-channel, especially in grocery. So in Alibaba, they have these physical stores called Hema, 
which are physical grocery stores. And what they can do is they make the grocery store not only a grocery store, but a fulfillment center. And so that I can deliver everything very quickly in a grocery world. Walmart's starting to do that. Walmart's starting to turn their stores into fulfillment centers. So they have automated fulfillment in the back part of their store so that they can do what, what Walmart's been doing is buy online, pick up in the store. So they're using omni-channel to let you buy online, but then you pick up in the store. But in order to, or curbside, in order to do that, you've got to integrate your supply chain. It's actually pretty complicated to do all that stuff. And all, you, as you can imagine, Walmart's very sophisticated in all that stuff. That's I, think that's what block, I think that's what Blockbuster thought they could do and uh, crush Netflix, and they didn't follow through with it, right? Because that, that was the idea that they had 10 years ago. Yeah, Blockbuster really missed the boat on that, you know, to not under, but that's the thing. If you're close to your customer, if you're looking at customer value, instead of pushing your product out all the time, you're going to be much closer to what people want. So uh, what kind of skills uh, do today's retailers need and what's the profile of the ideal CEO going forward here in the 21st century? I, I got to say, I'm really happy I'm an actor. <laughs> I'm trying to be a business person in today's world. That's pretty tough. So, you know, you've got a very sophisticated on customer value, on, on all these merging of all this technology. If you're a retailer, you still really have to understand supply chain issues. You know, I mean, you're the CEO, so you can hire talent, but you need to have all of this talent. Now we've got a lot of this HR kind of stuff, you know, the Black Lives Matter kind of things. Brands are expected to take a position in certain kinds of things. So you have to have the values. We're looking to CEOs to be the leaders of our neighborhoods now of our world. Like the CEO is not just a business person. They should express certain kinds of values and leadership abilities that people are looking up to um, where they didn't necessarily think business leaders have to do that. Now, regardless of whether you're on one side or the other of the spectrum, a lot of people are looking to business leaders to come up with the values, you know, that we should, that we need in today's very complicated world. Um, and so- This is cultural and social. Yes, cultural, social, economic, supply chain, operations, marketing. You know, you have to be a pretty sophisticated person. And as far as I can tell, CEOs are working 24 seven. Is there um, anybody out there who's doing that really well? Well, I mean, I don't really study these. I mean, obviously, Jeff Bezos is an incredibly successful. I think Doug McMillan, who's the CEO of Walmart, is doing a really good job. Brian Cornell at Target is doing a really good job. Um, Richard Galanti at Costco, he's the CFO, but he's the spokesperson for Costco. These are all, these are the winners, you know, and they took, look, they went into COVID. Now, granted, they were in stronger positions than other retailers going into COVID, but that didn't mean there wasn't incredible challenges. I mean, COVID came and threw a curveball to absolutely everybody. And these people figured out, and, and they didn't do it without stumbling. Like Amazon stumbled in the beginning, but then Bezos said, we got to invest. We got to do supply chain. We've got to figure out these issues and we're going to have to figure it out fast. So these I talked to somebody at Michael Kors and they were getting crushed. Like they had all, most all their business comes in traditional stores and very little bit online. And they were mass letting get people go and they weren't, they're not sure if they're going to survive this. Yeah. Well, so in the luxury world, um, now they're going through bankruptcy, but I actually think the Neiman Marcus strategy is very interesting. So they're going through bankruptcy now, chapter 11, but that's to restructure their debt. A lot of this, and they're, you know, I'm more sophisticated finances than I, I know about, but, but it's partly a restructuring kind of thing, what they're doing for bankruptcy. When they come out of bankruptcy, they're hoping they're going to be in a much stronger position. And they are really a big believer in this customer-centric omni-channel. So what they're doing is integrating their online, offline with a sales associate app, which is called Connect. So they can connect to their customer. Their salespeople can connect to, connect to their customers 24-7, wherever the customer is. And they do believe in the, the importance of the store. The store is very important for building those connections between the customer and the sales associate. But then you need to be able to reach out to that customer, not just in the physical store, but wherever they are. And that's the idea of connecting 
the, the app, the in-store, the out-of-store with this connection to the end user. So I would imagine Michael Kors was not as um, omni-channel in that sense. And yeah. then if physical stores go down, you don't have this 360 degree of your customer. Neiman was in a better position, even though they're going through um, bankruptcy now, because they had already developed this app, which they were just about to test before COVID hit. They were going to do it in a small way to test it. But when COVID hit, they tested it in a much broader way. So they had that ability to reach out to, the end, to their end users, even when their physical stores were closed. Um, and that gave them an advantage over a Michael Kors if most of it's going on through the physical stores. Do you see a pivot point coming when uh, personalization of the retail experience online turns to concerns about privacy, which in turn results in a shift back to physical versus virtual shopping preferences? Yeah, I mean, privacy, that's obviously a huge issue, and we can't underestimate the importance of all of that. And we're going to have to see, I don't know how, whether it's going to come from the industry is going to come together and create their own code of standards, or if we're going to have more re regulation. And like, there are a lot of different ways to see this happen. But yes, your data is super important to you. And you've got to be able to control what people see or don't see. I completely believe that. And I think all retailers who are customers focus, we'll see that. They don't want to do something that scares you about giving away your data. They're not out to get you. They're trying to deliver value to you. So what I think will ultimately happen with privacy concerns is if you believe in trust, this is the important word, the number one word, if I was going to put something up here that COVID has treated, uh, taught us, trust. If you trust your retailer, if you trust your local retailer, your local store, if you trust someone who has your data and you believe they're not going to use it in a bad way and they're only going to give you value, you're willing to make that trade-off. Um, so I think privacy issues are very important. Cybersecurity is very important. You've got to feel like your data is protected and that if you give something up, you're getting something of value back. And I think that's the way it's going to work. But by the way, that ship has pretty much sailed. You know, the data is all out there. There's, you know, so you just got to hope that um, the regulations are in place and that we have scrupulous retailers that are using the data correctly. Uh, what do you think of the strategy as opposed to having separate brands for each category? So you mean like a branded house versus a house of brands? Is that yeah, what I think so. So let me give you an example of a house of brands, LVMH is a house of brands. So they're a luxury house. They have Louis Vuitton. I think they have Celine. I'm forgetting now who's which one. They obviously have Moet, um, you know, they have alcohol brands. They have a lot of luxury brands. That idea of having different brands, for, it's expensive to, to manage all of those different brands, but it keeps the segment separate and it allows you to target differently. Oh, sorry about this. Um, it, it allows you to target differently to different customer segments. It, it gives you a portfolio model. A lot of pharma companies have a house of brands so that if something happens to one drug, it doesn't affect a different drug. So there's a lot of reasons to have different brands. But if you have one brand, like Ralph Lauren is more of a branded house. So everything in Ralph Lauren has the Ralph Lauren name on it, everywhere from runway, which is couture, which is very high, all the way down to Ralph Lauren out outlet, which is obviously a very different price point. All of that goes under Ralph's name. That's, there's a lot of synergy if you can leverage the high-end design brand to sell at the outlet. But you got to be really careful when you have one brand over all those different levels, because you can imagine if you can't tell the difference between an outlet shirt and a a couture shirt, why would you pay the high price? So you've got, you've got to be able to manage that brand across all of these different things. But if you can't manage the brand across that, there are synergies and cost advantages. So there's a lot of trade-offs with your different branding strategies. Um, I teach a, a semester-long course on branding, and this is really what it's about, whether or not you can extend your brand to other categories across different price points, there's a lot of issues to it. And when you start to think about it, you can imagine some of those different issues. And there's a ways to measure it and to, 
to figure out what those different trade-offs are. So you, you talked about earlier about if you could drive people to come to your business if you focus on a specific area, which is what Jeff Bezos did in the beginning with books. Well, what do you think, uh, can you talk about the failure of Radio Shack and, and did you see it coming? What could they have done to succeed? Because they were a very well-known brand. If you wanted technology products, you went in there and, and for, for a lot of people, it was like a, a, a toy store for uh, cool gadgets and, and you went there. So what happened? So if you go back to my matrix, which I described to you, my matrix has these four boxes, branded product, customer experience, that's on the top row. So those are like pleasure kinds of things that give you more value. And the second row is low price or what I call frictionless, take away the pain from shopping. Okay, so you got those four boxes. Top row is fun stuff, either product or customer experience. Bottom row is take away the pain, make the product cheaper, or make the experience easier. Okay, those are the four boxes. So the strategy that I have for my matrix is if you want to not be part of the retail apocalypse, you've got to be good enough in all four of those quadrants. Now it's hard to be good enough because the expectation in each one of those boxes is constantly being ratcheted up. What's good enough, say in frictionless, it's constantly being ratcheted up by Amazon in particular. You know, we used to be able to wait two weeks for a product to be delivered to our home. We can now barely wait two hours. So that expectation of what good enough is, is being ratcheted up. Similarly, you can imagine it with price competition. If people are competing on price, the price just goes lower and lower and lower. So what a fair price is, is constantly changing as a result of what everybody else is doing. If you're not good enough in all four boxes, you're not going to survive the retail apocalypse. I would argue all the chains that went out, Toys R Us, uh, Radio Shack, Circuit City, they weren't good enough in one of the four boxes, and some of them weren't good enough in more than one. They either weren't offering enough product assortment, it was easier to buy it online, their price wasn't good enough, they go into, when you go into a Toys R Us store and it was a nightmare, it wasn't fun anymore. Toy Store should be fun. It wasn't fun. It, it was a terrible situation. You could get it cheaper at Walmart. You could get better toys somewhere else. Why would you go to a Toys R Us? There was no reason. So the first thing you have to do is be good enough in all four of those quadrants. If you want to be a leader, you got to be the best at something and then leverage that best strategy to be the best in the second quadrant. So that's what I call the two quadrant strategy. So to win in retail, you got to be the best at something, leverage that advantage to be the best at something else, and then be good enough in the other two boxes. And remember, what good enough is, is constantly being ratcheted up. Um, and so it's one thing to survive, and it's another thing to lead. Let's just start with survival. If you're on survival, make sure you're delivering to all four of these boxes. And what retail Retail has historically done is just focused on the product column of my matrix. They've just focused on merchandising and pricing, which is still very important. But what Amazon and Sephora and all the new retailers have done and live streaming and TikTok, they've made the customer experience as important as the product. And so now in order to win in retail, You've got to be great at the product. You have to have the right assortment. You have to have the right prices. Everybody knows that who's in retail. But you also have to have the right experience. You have to give me a reason to want to go into your store or go to your website. And you have to make it as easy and as frictionless as possible for me. You can no longer have it be that I shop around the store and then it takes a half an hour to get through the, the, the line you know, to pay for it. People won't stand for that anymore. You are men, are men shopping, shopping more now because of this? Like are for me, shopping? I hate shopping, but because of Amazon, I think I'm buying a lot more stuff. Well, I think a lot of times that Bezos is not your typical shopper and maybe he's a quote unquote man and he prioritized, make it as easy as possible. I want this product, but I don't like the process of shopping. Some people do, you know, and maybe it's by gender. Maybe there's some main effect of gender and maybe there isn't, it doesn't really matter. Some people do love to shop and they like the experience and some people don't. And guess what? That was a brilliant insight. That's what I was saying about one-click shopping. It was a brilliant insight, so brilliant that he's the richest man in the world to say, not everybody wants to walk to the back of the store to buy the friggin' milk. 
<laughs> is that comparable to Alexander Graham Bell's patent on the with the phone? I, I don't know. I don't know anything about that patent, but I'm saying sometimes the simplest ideas can be the most brilliant. Uh, do you, is there anybody that can compete against Amazon? And do you see the, if they can't, you see the government eventually breaking them up? Okay, so there's three ways to deal with that. One is there's a lot of antitrust stuff going on. Whether or not Amazon is doing antitrust, and we can go, I'm not a lawyer, so I shouldn't talk about this, but like there's a lot of different issues that people are thinking they may or may not be fairly competitive, but that's you know beyond my pay grade. Lawyers can tell me that issue. And there are stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff going on. That. The one who's best able to compete against Amazon face-to-face -face is Walmart. Never underestimate Walmart. So Walmart's doing a really, really good job. They're redefining once again what it means to be easy. So Amazon talked about one click as easy. Walmart's talking about buy online, pick up in the store, curbside delivery as easy. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, they think that's actually easier because I don't know when I'm going to be home or when the delivery is going to come. I just as soon just drive by and pick it up and have it be there when I want it. So they're rethinking. And Walmart can go head to head against Amazon. Costco is competing against Amazon with an entirely different uh, model. So there's some really big players that are competing head to head. Alibaba in China, if you look globally, there's a lot of people. It's not just Amazon. Costco is a great fun experience. I mean, I love going to Costco and never, and I've been to BJ's and to me, it's like going into the back of an old warehouse and there's no fun to it. It's just you know, trying to get the discount. So Costco has a number of interesting strategies. First of all, going back to old time retail, they're terrific merchants. They have the eye. When you go into uh, Costco, the merchandise that they have in their assortment is fantastic. They just somehow or another, and so never underestimate the value of sophisticated marketers or retailers or buyers who know what's cool. There's something to be said, and, and Costco's always been ahead of the curve on what the cool stuff is and how they do it. And they did it before the fancy algorithms. Like, they really kind of knew that, and they've always had that. The other thing that Costco does is um, the treasure hunt. So I think it's something like 20% of the assortment in Costco won't be there the next time you go. 80% of it will be there, but 20% won't. So what Costco trains you to do is if you see something that you like, you better buy it because it's not going to be there the next time. Um, and so that makes it kind of a treasure hunt, a fun thing, you know, let's see what's new. There's always something new and I better get it now because it won't be there. That's just building on psychology. It makes, it makes Costco fun. The other thing about Costco is it's very low price. They don't make their money. They make very little money on their margins. They make most of their operating profits from membership. So they really are a very good deal. So now you've got to buy in bulk. So there's a cost to it, but if you're willing to buy in bulk, you are getting a very, very good price. And remember, there's always people that are very price sensitive. Uh, how do you feel about organic social media marketing to promote your products? And, and I think, you know, advertising on TV shows, I think that's great for maybe 50 and older market, but for the younger market, I don't see them watching commercials at all in social media. So what's your take on this? Well, even, even commercials have become very micro-targeted because people are not watching it, you know, except for sports and who knows the state of sports now, but that's part of the reason for marketing that sports are so important because it's real-time TV and big audiences. But typically a lot of the way people are watching even TV is in, you know, on their iPads and micro TV on demand and stuff like that. So it's much more targeted, but for sure, a lot of the money's going to digital. It's going to social medias. It's going to this influencer market, Instagram, all of this is it, the, it, there's a merging between what retail is and what old advertising is. And it's all switched together in one kind of thing together. Um, and it's the way Gen Z and millennials, that's the way they look at media. That's the way they shop. Um, yes, definitely through Instagram, through um, digital advertising, you know, advertising on the platforms, which is kind of MarTech, more conversion kind of advertising, a lot of sophisticated stuff. But that's not to say there's still not value in, in the, you know, a Super Bowl ad or building brand or creating brand awareness. And some of these people are still buying big commercial time on, you know, mainstream TV. 
Now I have one more question for I have one more question for you um, before we wrap up. And, and I so enjoyed having you here. And I could actually spend a couple more hours with you asking about five and below and others. But there was an interesting question that Jeff Bezos was asked that you mentioned in your book, which is what uh, what won't change in the next five to ten years? Can you please explain that answer? Yeah, so like uh, apparently, and this I just know from the internet, but I assume it's true. Um, a lot of people go up to Bezos and said, look, you know, 20 years ago, you predicted the future. So what are you going to predict for the next 20 years? What can you tell me will be different then so that I can start preparing you? Like that's apparently a common question he gets. And his answer had been, the one I saw was, you're asking the wrong question. What the right question is, is what will be the state? And then you've got to deliver to those customer values. Now, I chose the strategy I chose because I think 20 years from now, customers will still want easy and low price. They're not going to come up to me from now, 20 years from now, and say, Jeff, make your products more expensive than harder to buy. Yeah. That is not going to happen. So I'm going to base my strategy on customers, what the customers want. And then maybe as the world changes, I have to respond like he showed he could do with COVID. That was a really big monkey wrench in his strategy. And he fumbled a little bit in the beginning, but he learned very quickly. Always remembering the core of do what the customers want and you're going to be in good shape. Where, where do they get your book? Can you show your book again, the cover? Oh, I don't, I don't have it. <laughs> well, I'll make sure I, I get it out to everybody um, oh, oh, with a link for those who want to get get your book. Shopping Revolution, and it's out there now. I am revising it at that time, which will be out in a couple of months or something. But the, all the principles I have there are all the same. It hasn't really changed. Barbara, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It was really enjoyable, and and we all walked away with great information. Great. And we'll look forward to interviewing you when you get the next book. Okay, that's great. All right. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Look forward to seeing you hopefully on Friday when we interview Barbara's colleague, Peter Vader. Take care.